Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except the Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing, reading, and receiving his word. Let's continue in worship together. God is love. For God so loved the world, the whole world, not just my world. God so loved every person in this world and sent Jesus to teach us what love looks like. L'amour est plein de bonté, l'amour. Et l'amour no es envidia. Liefde prompt niet. Lubov ni gardica. Tarangen en chipegaupta. L'amour pae goiz. Ting eo se chang ze dang nang zet. Ie gartik sa knaito ka koku ekun kan. Premlei dushtma prasen nagatena. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. To love every person, every nationality, Every background, every history, every soul. Because in life, we find faith, hope, and love. 
but the greatest of these is love. All right. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you. I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here at Garfield Memorial Church. So glad you're tuning in with us or you're with us here in our worship space. Uh, I want to take you on a little journey today. Okay. Uh, my wife and I have been talking to uh, some of the folks that help us lead these tours. We've led uh, two tours out of here at Garfield to the Holy Lands. We're planning on going back in 2022. I need to get back to the Sea of Galilee. I need to get in the waters of the Jordan River after all this craziness. Uh, we're looking at a journey with Paul, etc. But today, I want to take you with me to a church called Antioch. We're in our teaching series, A Renaissance of Reconciliation. Uh, this comes out of our vision work from our Vision 2020 team, looking out for the next 10 years as what's Garfield's witness? What is God calling us to do? And they felt this word reconciliation pressing in on them for such a time as this, that God had uniquely positioned Garfield not to be a better church. We, we have a video that says if you're looking for a perfect church, we ain't it. Okay? But, but that there's a special witness maybe that what God is assembling, that we have something to say to greater Cleveland, to our world at this time. And our vision team kept hearing this word, reconciliation. And so we started this teaching series, a renaissance of reconciliation here uh, for Lent into Easter, listening in to what we felt the Holy Spirit was saying to the church. So two weeks ago, I kicked it off as we looked at our mission. You heard Pastor Scott saying, widening the circle, connecting diverse people who share a common brokenness with Jesus. And that Jesus in Luke 9, verse 51, set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had a mission to reconcile us back to God. And then so doing to trigger a reconciliation to one another. Pastor Steve last week just took us to the, to the you know, balcony of heaven in the way that only Pastor Steve can. As he was saying that to get to reconciliation, as he looked at our vision is through discipleship, meaningful, real discipleship. It, it struck me that when we started this whole vision series back in January 2020, any remember when that was? It's curious, like, uh, how long ago? Like 20 years ago, right? Like, hasn't time just changed? But I started off saying, are we going to be fans or followers? And I had that in my head, and Pastor Steve talked about how meaningful being at a communion table, which we'll come to here at the end of this service, with the Revelation 7-9 church, every people, nation, language, and tribe, that it, 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 it breaks heaven into earth. That's what Dr. King talked about, the beloved community. It gives us a glimpse, the memory trace back to who we were supposed to be. And, and I thought about where does discipleship happen? It happens in Christ's church. Now, the pandemic has given an exclamation point to all of us that the church is not the building. Amen? You've got to say amen in your living room because you're not here. Right? The church is not the building. We've understood the church is not a building. It's not a denomination. It's not an organization. It's not a lot of cute little programs. It is God's idea for a community, for a restored, reconciled, beloved community of God's children, people of all 
walks of life to be restored to their right relationship with God and with one another. If, if the pandemic and, and what's happened in our world hasn't taught us that Jesus has a high ambition for his church, nothing ever will. In fact, Jesus, you know, was the first person in the history of the universe that ever said the word church. Matthew 16, he's the first one who said it. He said, I will build my church, not these things that we've created, but people who, he said the word ecclesia, called out, set apart on a mission. People who will be my restoring, reconciling, uh, forgiving, grace-based people to restore the human family. That was his idea, not ours. Now, have you ever heard of stories where there's like a masterpiece, uh, some artist has created something and, and through the years it got painted over or it got something put on top of it. Remember, like somebody goes to a garage sale and they buy something for like $10 and you peel it back and it's worth a million. Was that you, anybody? There is a 10% surcharge. No, I'm kidding. Um, you, know, you know, you hear these stories, but if you really study it, when that happens, when artists through the years and archaeologists, they have to be meticulous and they have to work really hard to peel away the exterior of the onion to get back to the masterpiece of the master. That's how we have to read our Bibles when we get to the church because Jesus painted a masterpiece of what the church is supposed to be but mediocre and bad artists like me I can barely do stick figures we painted over this thing we put all of our human ideas and concepts upon it you know pastor chips are, this is what church is supposed to be and we painted over Jesus's masterpiece and our work together right now for a minute to get back to Antioch is to meticulously peel some of that off to get back to the masterpiece of what Jesus had an idea and a dream for his church. See, we know the church has probably kept more people away from Christ than has brought people to Christ by how shoddily we have managed it. But if you had a great artist, a Rembrandt, a, a Michelangelo, a Leonardo da Vinci, and they spent the last three years of their life creating something, don't you think you should look at it and see the master? And that's what Jesus desires for his church. And that's why on the night before he died, on John 17, the, the long high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his church. He said, I don't pray just for Peter and James and John, but I pray for those that are to come because of their testimony. And three times he prays the same prayer. He says, I pray that they would be one. I pray that they would be one. And the third time he said, I pray they would be completely one. So that the world would know you sent me. Jesus had a high ambition for his church. He had a dream that, that, that his church would represent all peoples, all situations, all sharing a common brokenness, as we say in our mission statement, who would come together as one. Acknowledging that and acknowledging the, the, the sovereignty of God, the, the grace of God, the love of God, the intention of God for his creation. And if we could live that way, and if we could walk that way, and if we could worship that way, the world would know that the gospel's real. I agree. I got an amen. Thank you. The youngest person in the house gave me an amen. They're longing for that world. Are you? 
right? This was our thing. And so we have this moment. We have this moment in this church in Antioch. This place where all of a sudden the gospel goes viral. I mean, the gospel was spreading. Pentecost came and 3,000 people came to Christ. Remember that? I always preach to preachers and say, don't you wish you preached that sermon Peter preached in Acts 2 where 3,000 people were baptized, right? Like, like that would be it. But I'm going to tell you something. That was a, a flea bite on an elephant compared to what happened when the gospel got to Antioch. See, Antioch is a model church for us. It's something for us to look at. Because the church in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, we always say, oh, that was an amazing church. They all, day by day, they broke bread together in each other's homes, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they shared their resources. And Acts 2, believe me, I used to think that was the ideal church. There were Acts 2 conferences. Pastor Scott, you remember Pastor Terry, when we were cutting our teeth in ministry, come to the Acts 2 conference. Be an Acts 2 church. I don't want to be an Acts 2 church anymore. I used to be. Because the Acts 2 church was a starting point, but not a stopping point. Jesus said, I want you to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the county like Cuyahoga County, Samaria, where you never want to go, and the ends of the earth. I want you to be viral. But instead of going, what happened? They stayed. They did all these things with one another. But in Acts chapter 8, the persecutions come. After Stephen is martyred for his faith, after we realize what it costs to uh, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow, not being comfortable, not being consumers, but actually preaching this beloved community, and the persecutions come because nobody wants that in the world. They want fracture. They want structure. They want power. They want the haves and the have-nots. But Stephen preached the kingdom, and he was killed. And now the persecutions come. We don't want that message. And they are scattered. Did you hear what Scott read? The people who were scattered. And if you read Acts 8, it says, Now the people who were scattered began to share the word of God wherever they went. Do you see what happened? They went from being ministry consumers to ministry providers, which is God, what God wants us to be. Ambassadors, bridge builders, reconciliation. At, at Mount Sinai, he said, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. In the Hebrew, the word priest means bridge. I want you to bring people back to me. And so they're scattered now, and all of a sudden something happens that's a widening of the circle. And you go, okay, Chip, yeah. That's Garfield's little mantra. Show me. I will. I know. There was a little Lord affirmation there. Widening the circle. What do I mean by that? What happens was, for a time being, when they heard this message, they shared it to other people who at least had similar beliefs to what they had. Pentecost, the gospel comes. Uh, all the Jewish people and those who weren't Jewish people but were learning about the God of the Bible, the word comes and they share it. Peter proclaims it. They're baptized. People who were searching for God heard that Jesus was God come to find them. 
Then Philip gets this idea to go down to Samaria, ethnic hostility enemies. You know, there was interracial uh, marriage in, in Samaria. The Jews didn't like that. Assyrians and Jews were marrying. But they still were searching for the God of the Bible, plant a church. Then Philip is out on the Gaza road. He meets an Ethiopian eunuch who is at least searching for the God of the Bible. He's reading the book of Isaiah for heaven's sake. And then in Acts 10, uh, Cornelius, who the Bible says is a devout and God-fearing man, though he was a Roman, though he was a different group, he was still looking for God. And that's how it started. But in Antioch, the circle gets widened. Why? Read this passage. It says that when they went to Antioch, when they got to the city, that uh, up to that point, right, with the, those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. Now, let's not put all of our 21st century prejudices on that word. They spoke the word to no one except those who had some sense of the God of the Bible of the Hebrews. But, Circle that butt in Acts 11.20. Among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, unknown heroes, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Greeks also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. All of a sudden, the gospel is being proclaimed to people who are at orgies, to people who are playing with Ouija boards, to people who have all their polytheistic... These are, these are nobody seeking the Lord. And the gospel goes viral. And why did they go there? Why did they have a heart for the city? Right? Why is it when God gets near a city, he goes crazy? Like Jesus gets near Jerusalem. If you travel with us, we go to that spot. He just got near the city and he starts weeping and saying, I want to gather you up like a mother hen gathers up her young. Why does God get near Nineveh with Jonah? And Jonah doesn't want to deal with those people because of his own racism and his own bigotry. And these aren't my folk. And God says, yeah, Jonah, but there's 120,000 people there who don't know their right hand from their left. And should I not show compassion for them? And do you know Jonah's the only successful prophet? You ever know that, said? He's the only one who goes into town and says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Everybody well, doesn't say Lord Jesus back then. Repent and believe in Yahweh, God. Everybody does, and he's ticked off. And God comes to him and says, hey, is it well for you to be angry? I could preach a whole sermon on that. Like, Jonah, how's that racism going for you? How's that sexism going for you? How's that, you know, political division going for you? Is it well with your heart? Are you laughing every day? Are you experiencing joy? <laughs> because God has a heart for what? For people. God has a heart for the city, and so should we. That's the message of why the gospel went to Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had 20 times the number of people as Jerusalem. Rome was the first time that cities were, were being created that were multicultural and pluralistic and every, every, every people under the sun because Rome had conquered so much of the world that people could travel freely. Uh, absence of all these, uh, you know, former border wars and everything else because Rome was in charge, and, and there, was, there was a Pax 
general manner of peace and commerce spread. And now these cities developed of everybody. And Antioch was a special place. You know why? Antioch was created by a guy named Seleucus. Seleucus was a uh, general of Alexander the Great, one of his key generals. In fact, he fought for control after Alexander died. And he founded Antioch, named it after his father Antiochus. And uh, Seleucus, when he built that city, he built this huge wall. Everybody knows those old cities, right? The huge walls to do what? To keep the outsiders out. But when they excavated Antioch, you know what they found out? It just didn't have a huge outer wall. It had huge inner walls. There were fortresses built within the fortress. Walls in the city as high as the walls outside the city. And you know why? Because where Antioch was, was at this strange geographical location of so many different groups. It was so near Africa that Africans came in not just Greeks and Romans. It was so near Asia that Asians came in, Chinese, Indians, and others. They said they had recorded 18 ethnic groups lived in Antioch at the time the Christians came. But guess what? Similar to back, I guess, in the, if you saw the movie Gangs of New York or whatever, when the Irish came and the Italians came and, 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 and you know, what happened was there were so many ethnic groups that they were worried that there was going to be ethnic wars if somebody stepped on somebody's robe in the marketplace, that they had to build walls within the walls to separate all these groups into corners. But when the Christians came, For the first time in history, people began to get outside of their walls and walk, work, and worship together as one. And did you hear that verse? Miraculous verse, Scott read. And for the first time, they were called Christians. Why do you think that is? What do you call them now? See, we were raised, if you're Italian, you're Roman Catholic. If you're Scottish, you're Presbyterian. If you're Nordic, you're Lutheran, right? What do you call people like this that are coming from all behind all the walls to be together? And that's what got Jerusalem's attention. And that's why they send Barnabas. And that's why the world had to come up with a word for them that had never been created because they were living back into the restored creation of God. Are you getting a window into what Christ's church is supposed to look like? And friends, if we can live this way, you know what happens? We right old wrongs and we recreate missed opportunities. Let me just give you an idea of the American church. If you know anything, the American church is in crisis. Garfield Memorial is not in crisis. You guys are amazing what we're doing. But, but we're, we're swimming upstream like salmon trying to get up, you know, up above the dam. Why? Because the American church has been declining for six decades. And you want to know why? Let me take you on a little history tour. The American church came to America the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant American church came to America. And they had a romantic idea about the city. Read John Winthrop, the Puritan, who looked out in the 1600s at Massachusetts and what would be Boston. And he said, America is a city built upon a hill. We were the new 
Jerusalem. We were the new Zion. And that's what they said about cities until about the mid-19th century. And I owe a lot of this to Dr. Sung Chang Ra, who Pastor Scott actually did a six-month internship before he came here. A great mentor and brother through the Mosaics Network. And Sung Chang Ra looked at this and said, but at that time, the narrative about American cities changed. You know why? Because immigrants started coming, but they weren't white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They were from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. They were Roman Catholic Italians. They were uh, uh, Eastern Greek Orthodox. They were European Jews. And they started coming to our cities. And now they weren't the city built on the hill anymore. Do you know that one denomination began to say when that happened, our cities are filled with rum and Romanism. (laughs) So we're not the New Jerusalem anymore. Now we're Babylon. And then at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, something else came to our cities. It wasn't an immigration. It was a migration, a great migration. You ever heard of the great black migration? That after emancipation, all of the African-Americans who were living in the Mississippi Delta began to migrate to cities, to New York, to Chicago, to Detroit, to Cleveland. And what happened? One scholar said this. It struck my heart. He said, do you realize when emancipation happened that up to 90% of African Americans in this country professed and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And these weren't like yawn your way through service like some of you are doing at home. Drink your coffee right now. These were people delivered. Have you ever read the story of Exodus? Read chapter 15. When they get out of Dodge, they got a worship service, guys. It isn't like, oh, what time is it? No, Miriam is praising God for like 36 hours. And historians said these were Pentecostals and Methodists and Baptists, on fire, revivalist Christians sent from the Mississippi Delta to cities, possibly by God, to revive his church. To revive the cities. But what happened? Everybody that lived there didn't view them as Christian missionaries. They viewed them as what? Threats. And what did that create? I don't like it. I'm a product of it. White flight. They left the cities and went to the suburbs. You know the story, right? This is our story. This is a missed opportunity. We could have been Antioch. But we became these fractured communities. Why? If Trust me on this. If you read history, Sung Cham Ra points out that in 1945, $25 million was spent on new churches in America. $25 million on the whole United States. That's like one of Saddleback's campuses. The whole United States. 15 years later, in 1960, that number rised to $1 billion. Why? Because of white churches being built in white suburbs. And I'm a product of one of those. Here's my church being built in 1966. That was my church being built. The church I grew up with with 900 white folks, right? Now look at the architecture. Does the same, just get a vision of it. That's it being built. And then here's the finalized sanctuary, beautiful sanctuary. That's where I grew up. Uh, That's where I was confirmed, everything. But what do you notice about that architecture? Anybody? Flip it upside down. What's it look like? Anybody? A boat. Somebody said a boat. Yeah, a big boat. A big boat. 
And where do we have a story of a big boat in the Bible? Noah's Ark. Somebody, you guys are smart, man. I preach this down south and nobody got it. Preach it in Cleveland, my folk, boat, Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. What's the story of Noah's Ark? If you're a Noah's Ark church, what are you saying to the world? We don't want you. We'd rather you perish in the floodwaters and the judgment of God. But we're safe in Noah's Ark. So you have your secular art, and we have our Christian art. And you have your secular music, and we have our Christian mediocre... Never mind. The music. And you have your... Your kids have your secular comic books and, and coloring books, but you come into our church at our Sunday school, and we have our Christian coloring books. And what is the message that's being sent? Are we preaching just to the Jews? Or are we willing to go to the Greeks? See, and this is what happened. And this is why we're in the mess we're in. And how do you do evangelism out of a Noah's Ark church? You suck at it. I meant to say you do it poorly. I'm getting fired up. My wife's going to be, oh my God, honey. She's in the front row too. You do. Here's why. Because you're in a Noah's Ark church, and here comes Uncle Joe, and he's floating down in the waters. And you go, hey, there's Uncle Joe. He likes our music. He likes our food. Uh, he, if he comes into our ark, it'll be cool. He won't disrupt anything. So let's go get Uncle Joe. But here comes your culturally different neighbor floating down. And you say, you know, I've driven by their house. They got way too many cars on the street. Their music is loud. I've smelled their barbecues. It doesn't smell like our food. If we take them in, we might have to change how we do things. So let's let them float on by and hope there's an ark down the street for their kind of people. Do you understand why the American church is in the mess it's in? This is what happened. But if we go back to Antioch, And if we don't just preach to Jews, but to Greeks, and we don't just preach to males, but to females, and we don't just preach to slave, but to free, and we don't just preach to people who speak in tongues, but people who don't speak to anybody. If we do all that, then all of a sudden the walls, they can't hold up. Do you hear me on this? They can't hold up. And then Jesus' prayer that they might be completely one, Father, as you and I are one, so that the world will know There's something out of this world that's happening. And that's this renaissance of reconciliation. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what got the world's attention. Because when you're a church for the city, you're a church for all the city. You don't just have a heart for some people, but for all people. And this boundary-breaking God comes in and begins to tear down all the prejudices and all the preconditions in our heart. And we can love people that we never thought were lovable. And we can spend time with people that we never thought were worth the time. And bridges can be built through a kingdom of priests. Somebody needs to amen that right now. That's our call. I know it's hard, but that's our call. So, and look at, let's just end this message here. I got a few minutes. Let's end this message with Barnabas. Barnabas is sent by Jerusalem. They said something amazing is happening down there, Barnabas. 
you got to go. One of the church leaders in Jerusalem. He wasn't scattered. The rest of the world was scattered of Christians, but he wasn't. He was secure. He was in his great place. And he says, send Barnabas. Barnabas goes down there and sees what is happening in Antioch. And did you hear that? It said he didn't just see all these people and he didn't just see all this diversity. He saw the grace of God. He saw grace. He saw a community that was built not on works, not on, not on you know, uh, heritage, not on uh, wealth, not on achievement. It was built on grace. And James and John, or Peter and John went down to Samaria. They blessed what happened and went back to Jerusalem. Barnabas got to Antioch and he never went back. He was willing to be scattered with the people. He was willing to be there. He was willing to stay put. And you know what this happens? When you have a love for a city, it creates what I call this gospel-based humility and an absolute dependence upon God. This is amazing humility. Humility, the best definition, is not thinking of yourself, or not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Barnabas goes down there. He's the man. I mean, do you see people are coming to him? Look at the verse they describe him. And they say he was a great man. He was full of faith. He was, you know, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Look at Barnabas. He could have been a rock star, man. He could have built the biggest church ever built. He would have had, he would have feathered his nest. He would have done all this. He could have made it happen. But then... Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. He said, you know what? They thought he was the greatest preacher ever heard. He said, I know a better preacher. I know someone who could do even more. Do you see when you have this heart for the city, you start getting this humility. It's not about me, God. We share a common brokenness. And we're going to go bring people to bring others to Christ. Let me tell you a quick story about a man that I read about. His name is Tom. He's from Jacksonville. He had the greatest cabinet building business in Jacksonville, Florida. It grew so much. He was a Christian. He prayed to God, bless my company. I want to bless others. And God blessed him so much that he was able to build this 25,000 square foot state-of-the-art manufacturing facility in Jacksonville. I think it was around 2007. And they were just cranking it out. But Tom noticed all of a sudden he was getting a call at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, of break-ins to his state-of-the-art facility. People were jumping the fence. People were breaking into his facility. He'd been there, he said, six or seven weeks when one of the police officers said, what were you thinking building this facility so close to the rock? He said, you never heard of The Rock. What's The Rock? It was the Cleveland Arms Apartments. That got my attention. <laughs> the Cleveland Arms Apartments in Jacksonville, which were the center of almost all drug dealing in Jacksonville. They called it The Rock because of the amount of crack cocaine that was sold there. And Tom had a crisis, and he went to God, and he said, God, he was mad at his realtor. How did we build this thing here? What is going on? God, I prayed you would bless my family. I've been honoring you. I've been giving my money to to causes. I've been doing all these things. Why am I here? He heard the voice of God said, don't be mad at the realtor. Be mad at me. I sent you here, Tom. And the next morning, Tom was so burdened by that, he went outside, and he didn't see drugs, and he didn't see crime. He saw kids 
playing basketball and, and other things. And he said, God, how, teach me how to love them more. So he bought all these basketballs, the real good ones. Like I used to coach varsity basketball and play, you know, the real good ones you play indoor. You don't use them outdoor, but he bought them. He didn't care. You know what he wrote on them? Jesus loves you. And Tom Vance, his name, loves you. And he threw them over the fence, all these balls. And uh, next thing you knew, a few days, weeks later, there were some kids that when he walked out, they used to run. They didn't run. And he said, hey, you guys want something cold to drink? And he said, yeah, you know. He said, come on in. He took him in his plant. He had the key to the vending machine. He opened it up. And they sat there and had Pepsis and Sprites together and shared a little bit. And he said, two weeks later, his receptionist called him and said, there's like 40 kids out here right now. They want to know where the guy is with the key to the vending machine. <laughs> and Tom went with those 40 kids and opened the vending machine and he opened up his heart, he opened up his life, he opened up his company. Let me tell you, this brother ended up selling that business to his partner and starting a school called the Connection School with a K. It's like Kids Club in South Euclid. We spell stuff different because we're not of this world. <laughs> a Connection School that ministers to four or five hundred kids weekly. And do you know what Tom and his wife did? They retired from that business. They sold their multi-million dollar home. And they moved into the Cleveland Arms Apartments. To love. To build. Right? And we serve a God who didn't just leave Jerusalem like Barnabas to go to Antioch and didn't just leave a cabinet-making company to go into apartment school like, like Tom. We serve a God who didn't just throw basketballs across the fence, but threw his only begotten son across the fence with the words written on him that God so loves the world that he gave us Jesus. Does that move us? <laughs> Does that cause us to create the church that Jesus dreamed of? I hope it does. Let me read these words from our vision statement on the screen. Just together. In the next 10 years, as part of this world's broken community, we will seek to become transformed by Jesus as we pursue a renaissance of reconciliation for all people. Somebody say all. All people. While living into the beloved community, we dream of a decade where the people of Garfield Memorial, as weak and as imperfect as we are, sow the gospel in greater Cleveland by saturating it with the gospel's love and power so that discord is replaced with unity. We want to be the yeast in our communities, the single cell that exponentially brings growth and new life, leading to lasting peace. May our cry... For a church from every nation, tribe, people, and language saturate our city to create a hunger for transformation from division to unity. I want you to know in that verse about Antioch, it says when these brothers crossed lines and went in and got involved in this ministry, the hand of the Lord was upon them. May the hand of the Lord be upon this church and upon you as we do this work. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.